Rachel Hampton. And I'm Candace Slim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And longtime listeners of the show know that here's usually around where we do some cute little banter to, you know, get the girls going, get y'all primed for some nonsense. But today we are doing something a little different. And that's because today's episode is a bit more serious than pesto recipes and Bobby Altoff. Before we really dive in, just want to give a heads up that today we'll be discussing school shootings and suicide. So if that's not necessarily your jam, we will see you on Saturday. A few weeks ago, I was scrolling the website formerly known as Twitter when I saw a tweet from former ICY, my guest Francesca Ramsey, that really, let's say, piqued my interest. It read, the fact that a confessed school shooter is out of prison and has now built an enormous audience on TikTok is just... And yes, he is. She was quote-tweeting culture writer Hannah Pfeiffer, who said, School shooter TikTok influencer, Lord, I have seen it all. And when Francesca says, yes, he is, she's referring to the fact that the confessed school shooter, John Romano, is white. Yeah, she later goes on to say, please don't mistake my disgust for surprise. Which is fair. When you consider who could actually amass a quarter of a million followers on TikTok after confessing to being a school shooter, let's be honest, it's not going to be someone from an already marginalized background. It can really only be a white man. And while it may not be surprising, it definitely raised some eyebrows. And for me, at least, it raised a lot of questions. We're going to get into some of those questions later, but first, and perhaps most importantly, who exactly is John Romano and what did he do? So in 2004, John Romano was a 16-year-old high school student in upstate New York. On February 9th, Romano brought a shotgun into his school and he fired it three times in the hallway. The shots were not fatal, but one did wound a teacher, and the entire incident lasted several minutes and it became front-page news. After the shooting, Romano said his intent was to die by suicide by cop. In a note he intended to be read after his death, he wrote, I'm not a monster. I've been happy for a while, but it wasn't true happiness. I just made it seem that way. Who should you blame? Society. Romano then appears in court and makes a plea bargain. At the age of 17, he's sentenced to 20 years in prison for attempted murder and reckless endangerment. Romano goes to prison for about 17 years and is released in 2020. And since he was released, he starts advocating for gun safety and mental health reform. Following the Parkland school shooting in 2018, he writes a letter to the Times Union saying that every time another horrible shooting happens, quote, all my victims are hurt all over again by what I did to them. I want to take away their pain. But knowing I cannot, I want to prevent others from experiencing this pain. In 2022, he begins doing some of that advocacy work on TikTok under the handle at John Seeking Peace, where he currently has just over 275,000 followers. His earliest videos were about life in prison. And as time goes on, he posts about all sorts of things, prison, gun reform, 
going on a Buddhist retreat, his work with the homeless, and yes, videos on preventing school shootings, where he gives details about his own school shooting. And it's in October 2023, about a year after he started his TikTok account, that Romano ends up making headlines again. And with those headlines come a lot of questions and a lot of feelings. Some people who see his videos comment that they appreciate the work he's trying to do, while others, lots of others, question whether he should even be allowed on a platform like TikTok or social media in general. It's really easy for me to understand the people who are saying John Romano shouldn't have a platform, who are saying he shouldn't be posting publicly about this or like this. Like, instinctively, my reaction is to agree with them. School shootings are horrific, and there's something that feels very attention-seeking about this, just like any social media feels inherently attention-seeking. But there's also something really punitive about that drive to get John Romano off social media, right? Especially when you consider the internet a public good, which I do, because this isn't really just about John at this point. TikTok and social media writ large, they create ways for anyone to build an audience, to share all sorts of things. It's sold to us under this promise of democratizing access to information. And I really struggle with the question of, is it right to suggest that a consequence of this violent act that Romano committed be that he basically forfeit his right to be online publicly? And if so... Are we saying that's true for anyone who commits a violent act? Would it be better if he just never spoke about it? Because I can imagine a world in which he does that and commenters find out about his past and basically pull a this you. I've been asking myself these questions since I saw Francesca's tweet. And honestly, I still don't really know how I feel about it. But I do know that I would like to feel better prepared to kind of wrestle with these questions in general and in the future because... This probably isn't the last time something like this is going to happen. Same. Which is why I'm really glad that we invited Dr. Tiasha Bankhead onto the show to talk about this with us. Dr. Bankhead is the executive director of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. She's an expert and scholar in racial and restorative justice, and she'll be with us to talk about all the complicated, understandable, and difficult parts of this after a short break. Hey, listeners, hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. We're thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays, so make sure you never miss an episode, like this past Saturdays with Ayana Ishmael, the associate editor at Teen Vogue. We talk about Twihards, Dance Moms, and we find out why Bella Hadid said Ayana Slade. And we're back. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tiasha Bankhead. Like we said before the break, Tiasha is the Executive Director of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. She is also a social justice activist, a restorative justice advocate, and a licensed psychotherapist. Welcome to the show, Tiasha. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and for having me. So you have a long storied career dedicated to racial justice, racial healing, and restorative economics. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? 
Sure. So I currently serve as the president of the board of the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. And I have the awesome and heavy responsibility of leading about 50 restorative justice practitioners in this movement building work around racial justice and racial healing uh, using restorative justice practices and principles. So when I was teaching research methods specifically, and I was asked by the Insight Prison Project at San Quentin if we would do a research project, my, me and my students, on the impact of restorative justice practices. I took 30 students into San Quentin and we sat in a circle with people who were all convicted of homicide, rape, or arson. And we listened to their stories and then we uh, collected data that looked at impulsivity, aggression, and compassion before and after a year-long restorative justice program that focused on support, accountability, and forgiveness. And we found statistically significant changes in all of those areas for the better. I guess I have to say, when saying that, that I don't think that the primary challenge that we have around the carceral system lies in individuals. It lies in the system itself you know, this oppressive and racist system that marginalizes um, people in black bodies and brown bodies uh, to offer the array of possibilities for folks' futures as very narrow and oftentimes criminalized. And so I just feel like I can't talk about individual transformation without, you know, like, yelling about how important it is for massive institutional, political, global transformation around the criminalization of Black people. And that's such a good point to make and one that I'm glad that you made. I feel like the term restorative justice is one that a lot of people became familiar with in the past five years, especially during the George Floyd uprising. I think it's one of those terms that started to get thrown around a lot in Instagram captions and like TikTok comments without a real whole lot of explanation. So for those who haven't experienced or learned about a restorative justice process, what would that look like? For example, if I were to have like wronged Candace in some way, how would that play out? So restorative justice is more than just a set of practices and tools, but principles um, that guide like how we live. So we think of restorative justice as a worldview it means that the conversations that we have, the way we walk on the earth, that we do that restoratively and not punitively. And it's radical, actually. You know, it is, um, a, it is counter to the way in which we are socialized in this country. In the same way that we're socialized in a race, a white supremacist, racist, you know, country to be that way, no matter who we are, we're socialized to be punitive, no matter who we are, right? Because that's a part of the mainstream. And so when you're challenging that, we have to kind of integrate all of our actions. Some of the principles are things like doing with versus doing to and kind of equity building among all voices, like incorporating, listening to all voices so that we're not hierarchical in the ways in which we come together and solve problems or build community. Um, and so all of that trickles down into just a... Um, an embrace of human dignity, no matter how much harm someone has caused, 
that we recognize that we all have been harmed and we all have caused harm and we continue to do so. And that no one is healed, but we're all on a healing journey. And But it is also true that people who are hurt hurt other people. So we need to be actively on our own healing journeys um, in order to be in the position to offer support and guidance to others. So if there is a conflict between you and someone, what is the response that restorative justice has to that? It's when folks may or may not want to involve law enforcement because particularly if they're from marginalized communities, they feel like when I call the police for help, I may end up being harmed. I may end up being killed. The person who caused me harm that I want to be accountable, but I don't want them to die, you know, in the process, I don't feel safe engaging these outside resources. And so what typically happens in tier two harm circle, harm response is the individuals who've been identified as impacted, most impacted, uh, will have preparation for a harm circle, right? Where in that we'll come to some consensus on how to remedy that harm. And knowing that we can't erase the harm that's been done, but we want to come to some agreement around repairing the harm uh, as much as possible. And so the first challenge is like, who's been impacted? really, you know, significantly impacted. So it could be the two of you, right? The person's caused the harm, the person's been harmed. But there may also be others, people who've observed it, people who instigated it, you know, people who are trauma impacted from some other trauma that this triggers, right? So you identify those folks who have been the most present and the most presently impacted, harmed by it, and ask and prepare them for a harm circle. And in that, it's asking the questions of what happened, who's been impacted, what can be done to make it right? Like, you know, how do we, how, how do we do that? And in these individual prep sessions, a lot of healing, I think that happens in that people get to tell their stories, people get to work out what does healing look like, what does reparation look like? And they also get a reaction from the people who are prepping them to say, oh, you think that's enough, right? Like, I don't think that's enough. You think that that's true accountability? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes there are folks who are like, I can't do anything and they want to harm themselves. And it's like, well, actually, maybe just expressing why, what state you were in when you did that. Like, that's a bigger contribution than you just harming yourself. So that preparation work, I think, is where a lot happens. And it allows for folks to come together. We don't bring people together for a harm circle. You know, there's art and science of this. It's not just the science of when people say, I'm ready for a harm circle. It's when you kind of really feel it that folks are ready for that. So we're here today to specifically talk about John Romano. As we explained before the break, Romano is a former school shooter who recently went viral on TikTok. At the age of 16, Romano walked into his high school with a shotgun with the intention to commit law enforcement-assisted suicide. Like we said, no one was killed, but a teacher was shot and injured, and Romano pleaded guilty to attempted murder and reckless endangerment. He served 17 years and was released in 2020. In the three years since his release, he has been publicly advocating for mental health support, prison reform, and gun control, and since 2022, he has been doing that work on TikTok. His early TikToks tended to be under the hashtags Prison Talk and XCon, which have 3.6 billion views and 163 million views, respectively. 
Before we kind of get into the specifics, Romano, I wanted to ask you, Tiasha, what you think in general of formerly incarcerated people who have committed violent acts developing a public platform. Because I think kind of underlying a lot of people's anger towards Romano is a really important question, which is what kind of online life can someone like Romano lead that will be tolerable to a wider public? Is it one that doesn't engage at all with the fact that they victimize other people? Or is it one that kind of leads with that fact? So I think that people who, formerly incarcerated people um, who have committed violent crimes have an important role, I think, in deterring future crimes from other people or future violent acts, let's say. Uh, from other people. I think that's critical. I think it's essential. And I think that the people who are most likely to engage in those behaviors are more likely to hear it from somebody who's been down that path and to receive it more seriously from them. The idea, though, on social media of someone in some ways being glorified for that, I think is can be problematic, right? And I think if there's backlash to those actions, it's around that issue. There's such a range of responses to folks who have been incarcerated at all. Our carceral system is extraordinarily kind of uneven and punitive and doesn't really look at healing and health and transformation. And I think is woefully um, you know, under-resourced and um, ineffective in providing the mental health support that people need. I think that is unquestionably a fact. Um, and it's also in certain carceral settings unsafe or not advisable to seek mental health treatment because it gets used against people for release. I think the public doesn't really understand those things to be true, you know? Um, and we believe, some of us believe at our core that we live in a just society. It's hard to walk around without holding some of that to be, to holding some of that dear, to kind of want to believe that. Um, and yet, I mean, I'm also married to a criminal defense attorney who's practiced for 40 years, a black man. We just, and I'm a social worker, like we just know, we've seen the stories, heard, the been up close and personal to it. So it's a factor in this John Romano, you know, kind of platform, I would say. Mm -hmm. So John Romano started going viral around the beginning of October of this year. And I can't say with certainty what video really captured people's attention. But if I'm going based off the video that let's say has like earned the most attention, it might be this one from September 29th. It has 4.4 million views. And it is in response to a comment asking if John Romano has been in contact with any of his old classmates. Have I spoken to any of my old classmates? Well, for those who don't know, I am a school shooter. I did 17 years in prison and I have videos about it. I have a lot of videos where I try to address this issue so we can prevent other shootings. And I work with law enforcement about that also. Um, but yes, uh, so I had friends of mine who actually 
kept in touch with me while I was in prison, who visited me. And I had a lot of old classmates who I wasn't even friends with reach out to me uh, since I came home. And especially since I've been on social media, um, there's been a lot of support. There's actually classmates and their family who are in the comments section of my video. You just don't realize it. There's also those who have reached out to me to share with me the trauma that they endured at my hands, the, the pain, the suffering, the anguish that they still feel to this day. And I'm open to it. I want to be helpful however I can. And if that includes people reaching out and, and sharing that pain, then by all means, I'm very open to it. Um, and, and I'm also speaking at my hometown. There's a public forum where I've been invited to share my story and to answer questions to hopefully provide help for parents, teachers and law enforcement, um, as well as people who can maybe get some type of closure from what I've done to them. So before we move on, Tiasha, I wanted to get your initial reaction to this video. It's complicated. I mean, I, I don't have a strong reaction to it. I, I do think that there's, I don't know if people are talking about the racialized pieces. One of the things, he's white presenting. And one of the things that um, I thought about in uh, observing the video was how incarceration is, you know, disproportionately impacting black people and brown people. Um, but people who are school shooters are disproportionately white people. So there's certain actions like school shooting, you know, that there are different social and economic groups that are more likely to be the person who's causing the harm. And so those are some of the things I thought about. And I think some of that, some of that is cultural. You know, it's about expressed emotion. And the forums in which it's safe for people to kind of express their emotion and which cultural groups get a pass on having deep sadness or strong, you know, depression or feelings or whatever that is, like where they get to be expressed and how they get to be expressed and how it gets to be pushed and, you know, down and, and, and um, hidden. So I thought about that as I watched that video. I thought about how that could trigger different people and it, it could happen unconsciously. And so why there might be intrigue and interest. I also thought about him being a life that was saved. He's alive and I have a high regard for a human life. I think that a lot of shooters, school shooters, um, mass shooters don't survive white ones are more likely to survive. So I guess I'm just thinking about how minoritized and racialized such incidents are for all of us. Because if you know the statistics and you know the data and whatever body you're living in, you we, we will all view these things through that lens. I believe him, you know, in his effort to try to educate others and to want to be a resource, and that he probably received support, you know, from folks and some some of the people that were, you know, at the school. Like all that rings true. That's what I've seen in other situations. I mean, I know of situations, um, folks I'm working with now, who've caused significant harm in school settings, including shootings, where uh, people and including homicide with people who they know, people who are closest to them and are seeking forgiveness and wanting accountability and not really sure 
like how to do that and not really trusting of it. And in some ways, acting in ways that are suicidal, like John Romano, as you described, was it was an active attempt to have, you know, assisted suicide, right? Um, and he was unsuccessful in that, right? He didn't, he didn't get what he wanted out of that in that moment. I would say being alive is a success. And yet, you know, it wasn't what his intended outcome was. And so, and that's because of, I would say, likely some deep psychological issues that were happening. And, um, you know, there probably, there's a legacy of that, I would say, that, you know, remains. I have a lot of compassion for that, as well as compassion for the people who were trying to just be a school and um, whose lives are shattered and who are forever traumatized, you know, by that experience. Yeah, that's a very, I think, nuanced reaction, which is not really the reaction that most of the internet had. The reaction is almost overwhelmingly negative. We're going to play one or two of those reactions after the break. And we're back. After John Romano is released from prison, he starts working in a homeless shelter. And a day in August 2022, according to Romano, he confronted a man for using derogatory language towards him. Romano said this man was talking to himself about, quote, white devils before launching at him with a sword, which almost severs Romano's arms and legs. That attack happened after Romano started TikToking. So he kind of ended up live blogging this entire experience, his recovery, um, the trial that happened afterwards. And at some point made a video saying that he believes that people can be racist towards white people because of the kind of language that was used in the attack. That video was the one that a lot of people laser focused on in the aftermath. So I'm going to play a few videos. The first one is from a user at the handle of at Alyssaphobium that I think kind of pretty accurately sums up a lot of the backlash. People can be racist against a white person. I do. And so does the man who attacked me with swords. He almost took my life while calling me the white devil. If you shoot up a school, here are three things you shouldn't be allowed to do. One, be on the internet. Two, monetize the storytelling of your crimes. And three, claim to be the victim of a hate crime when someone very accurately calls you the white devil. This school shooter has been able to amass a following of over 250,000 people on an app made for children. Your redemption arc after shooting up a school should be moving in silence, not boasting about how you've become a better person. It seems very much so that you are now searching for the attention that you were searching for back when you shot up that school. And it's a shame that people are giving it to you. I don't disagree with everything she said, except the white devil stuff. It's not surprising, though, in my view, that kind of response would be triggered right from him because of all the other things we talked about already. Right. The concern. I didn't call it monetizing his experience, but the concern about folks who are taking a tragedy that they've been a part of and advertising it on the internet through social media, that that's problematic. And there are lots of, and one of them is, is this issue that this last person um, identified and highlighted. I agree with all that. Racism and white supremacist ideologies are socialized into all of us and especially white presenting people, right? 
And so there's a way that this man has had that experience all of his life. So even through his tragedy, and I will say recovery or attempts at that, that that remnants of that, the legacy of that is very present, right? Um, and if it's not directly taught, if he doesn't have a, a similar kind of aha, transformational moment and then pathway, the idea that, you know, all white people are socialized to be white supremacists, I don't disagree with that, you know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, he's a part of that. Uh, that still doesn't mean that I can't have compassion for whatever transformation he's attempting to do. I think that poster uh, shared around monetizing it and the followers and the concerns about all of that, I think it is problematic. And we're going to play one more reaction from at You Can Call Me Kate. I have gone back and forth over the past couple of days on whether or not I would make this video, but it's important and I want to address it. I'm sure many of you have seen these stitches with the individual who was involved in a 2004 school shooting. He was sentenced to 20 years and did a little over 15. Oh my God, I'm shaking making this. Out of curiosity, I went and clicked on this man's profile and I saw that he follows me. Um, I'm guessing it's from the video I made where I asked 10 teachers what they would do in the event of a school shooting. The caption in my bio <clears throat> says dead kids can't read. If you are unfamiliar with me, I am an early childhood educator and a parent who went from teaching in public school to teaching privately because of gun violence. I could not continue to go to work every day and feel scared that I was um, going to die. The first time I ever had to tell a group of kindergartners about a lockdown drill um, changed me. Have you ever looked into the eyes of 27 five-year-olds and told them that they would be okay when you're pretty sure that they wouldn't be? Have you ever thought about using your body as a human shield to protect babies? I drop my third grader off at school every day and I pray over her that she will make it home from school. That's the reality of living in the United States. And you, sir, are one of the OG school shooters. The only reason you are out walking around as a free man is because no one died. And thank God no one died. But you ruined people's lives that day. There are people who are never going to feel safe again because of you. You say that you wanna be part of the solution. Speak privately with psychologists and school counselors so they know what to look for, but you should not have a platform. And no one should be supporting this man's platform. You are a narcissist and I believe that you are evil. I believe people are capable of change. But it takes a special kind of person, a special kind of evil to walk into a building with children with the intent on taking their lives. If you care about making a change, you will leave this platform. Yeah, I agree with her too. I think like how that gets represented and discussed and even talked about by others who've watched it. Like to me, this it kind of minimizes the gravity of the experiences, both the shooters, you know, John Romano's post scenes and those who 
are posting as an argument, as a counter and response to, I know that's kind of what social media is, right? It's around creating a wide open platform of opportunity for people to express themselves. But it sounds as though folks are wanting to control others or, and you can't do that in, the, in those environments. You just can't. And there's also the concern about, well, if he's getting followers or if certain people are getting followers, that must mean that they believe in that and folks need, feel like they need to challenge and, you know, try to move people uh, in another direction while also not being aware of their own, what they are themselves bringing from their own lived experiences, right? Which are framing the ways that they see and experience what, you know, someone's presenting. I mean, fear is real that people have, but the fear that we have comes from our lived experiences and our sense of safety, right? And so there are people who, you know, can't work in certain environments because they're just terrified, right, to walk down the street. And there are others who can maybe work in environments that are less safe or not as safe, but because of their lived experiences and their histories, they have a sense of safety or they have a higher tolerance for a less safe environment. So to me, that's kind of what I thought she was bringing forth. And, you know, she also was a white presenting woman. And there was, you know, there's a social class kind of layer on that, in my view, as she talked about transitioning from public school teaching to private school teaching. There are all these things that are coded and um, nods to social class and racial identity and by association, power and privilege and, you know, association with a marginalized, oppressed or privileged group. And to me, that is the subtext of much of the three videos that we just watched, right, that are related to these matters. You know, the internet and social media particularly has given kind of free reign for some previously privately discussed responses to public incidents to be in snippets in the public arena. And I think the harmful part of that is that these are big, complex issues that require a deeper conversation and an exchange. And it's, I think, dangerous to distill it down to, a, you know, fractional, you know, snippets, where in some ways, it feels a bit performative from some folks as they, you know, set the camera and the stage and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, are, are curating their emotional responses to like everyone. Uh, in a way that is production ready. That's the era that we're living in. And when we're talking about serious harm and people's lives, the potential death, children, adults, incarceration, all of that, it's just, in my view, so serious and s such big issues that are deserving of a, of a more comprehensive platform to have, you know, discussion and exploration. So, there is a final video that we would like to play. It's from John Romano himself, and he posted this on October 4th, which was a few days after his public profile started gaining attention and he started getting a lot of questions. So the caption to this video reads, 
I can never undo the pain that I have caused people in my past, but I hoped I could be a part of the preventing others from experiencing that pain as well. I'm sorry to those I have hurt with my platform. Before I started to do public speaking and social media, I weighed out, will I be helping or hurting more? And for a long time, I believed that I would be just hurting people more. And I had people reaching out to me and saying, no, I believe that you can help more. Uh, Unfortunately, we've seen so many people, so many survivors speak out and get ignored. Giving your perspective, which is rare, can help us understand what's going on and how to stop it. Um, I see a lot of the pain that people have because of me, and I've always been aware of that pain. And I'm I'm taking some time to reflect and to think about, I still want to help. I used to do a lot more behind the scenes before I started going public. And whether you believe me or not, I really do want to do good. I really do want to help people. And... I hope that I can do that in one way or another, whether it's publicly or behind closed doors. And, you know, after this video, he ended up turning off his comments. He ended up privating his TikTok account. And at the time of this recording, he did put his TikTok back publicly. And so I think the question that kind of still remains is whether or not this man should be allowed to have a platform. And so we kind of wanted to ask you that, Tiasha. Well, I mean, I think our nation allows this man to have a platform, you know. I'm a strong advocate of free speech, you know. <laughs> I mean, I believe that people should be able to express themselves. And I think that we need an educated consumer base of, of this material, right? So we need to educate ourselves on what we expose ourselves. I'm vegan, right? I don't take a lot of stuff into my body. I'm vegan with what I take into my mind too, right? You know what I mean? Like really, really clean and pure about and what's healthy and nourishing. And so I worry about why so many, you know what I mean? Why, why is this so attractive to so many people? What is the need that they are getting filled by this? Is it a need to shame another or to anger, be angry with another? Or, you know, like, is it, just that they're outraged and they need to have a place of outrage. Is it to be reminded that folks like this exist? Or is it just the where we are at this moment in society when we're so polarized politically, where we can't imagine forgiveness or we want to punish and harm as in response to harm? Or, you know, or is there something around just trusting what he's saying, which I struggle with, right? I I actually believe what he said at the end. I also believe that there's some ego needs that are being met by that. And there's something that is satisfying to know that you have a big following of people, no matter what that message is. Some people will do that for harmful messages. Some people will do it for any message, because it's validating, right? It feels like, oh, folks are, it's feeding my ego to know that people are kind of listening to me, um, no matter what the message, and they're willing to change and craft that, you know, for that. So to me, the question is more about social media and its role and its kind of impact, and how do we manage and control our own appetite for it? How do we receive and digest uh, the information in a way that it is not causing further harm. And I'm not sure that this attempt to repair, right, that he's done here is not causing further harm. 
I know for us, like when I'm practicing as a restorative justice practitioner, we will not have a harm circle if we believe that we will cause further harm. I think something I've kind of been turning over in my head as we've been thinking about this episode and thinking about, I guess, how to approach this is that so much of the discussion around this came down to this man should not be allowed online, which to me feels very punitive in a way, like the desire to kind of exile someone from social life feels very punitive, which makes me want to ask, what do we as observers who were not necessarily harmed directly by this man, what are we actually owed in this situation? If someone's caused harm to the public in a big way, then the response, I think what's owed is accountability. Apologies are part of that. It's not all of it, but, you know, accountability in a big way. Taking in, really, truly, deeply receiving the messages, the response, the information that's being given, and then doing something proactive and corrective, right? Something that corrects to the best of their ability the harm that's been caused. I agree with you that it's punitive to kind of exile someone, to just push them out. And I think legally and just practically in this matter, it's virtually impossible to do that. Like the person would have to have their own transformation. They may need some help. Like he would need some help doing that. Like if I were helping him, it would be thinking through what are these messages that you're getting? How do you respond, John Romano, to these messages? I think the answer is not necessarily to exile him or to just to erase him from this platform, but to encourage some kind of internal reflection transformation, which I saw a little bit of potentially happening. I mean, maybe it was performance. You never know. He seemed tearful. He seemed moved. He really moved. He felt, sounded like he really wanted people to believe that he want, you know, he was honestly trying to make a difference. I think that's something that I can work with. I think most people feel like they can work with that. But the medium itself, like on social media, doesn't really allow for like the next step, which is like the focus group, the workshop, the individual therapy, the counseling, the support, the circle of support and accountability that's going to move people to a place of health and transformation. Like to me, that's what's missing. And I don't know how it's possible in isolation in this way, right? Maybe we need, you know, let's be innovative. Maybe what we really need here is like for social media, circles of support and accountability, right? When people take these actions that are harmful to large communities, right? Across the globe, honestly, because it's just, you know, there aren't the physical boundaries. What happens to ensure accountability besides canceling people? How do we have health and healing and transformation um, and accountability of the words that harm people, that uh, some people make, as well as their actions. To me, that's the remedy. Kind of linking back to the work you do today, what would it look like for John Romano to engage in a restorative justice process? And is there any argument that maybe a platform like TikTok could be a part of that? We can respond. I mean, I would, if 
he reached out to us, we would, you know, if a group working with him reached out to us and said, there's some healing that needs to be done. And this is the situation that's going on. You know, if one of the requirements of restorative justice practice is that um, it's invitation, not obligation. So the participant would have to have the desire to do so. He may have the desire. Um, and then it's a process, you know, the process of first him understanding what happened beyond the shooting at the school, but the, what happened in terms of the social media pieces that he's advanced, right? He's been the one who started this thing, right? And he's expanded it. And so getting him to really see that, first of all, to see what those things are. It's unclear to me that he sees it. He's fighting against seeing it in some ways, resisting that. So that would be some of the prep. And then the folks who have been harmed by it, a, a group of those who've been most impacted, just like with any other harm circle, it would be prepping people for that, probably doing it virtually, you know, and then having coming up with a plan for reparations. What would it mean to repair this harm that's been done? You know, would it be a series of postings? Would it be even, you know, like sharing the process and the consensus and of understanding that not everybody's going to be um, convinced of that, you know, the transformation that has happened. But um, if we could get to that, to me, that's how you go on a road to healing from something like this. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. That's the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave a five-star rating and review an Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or not.